What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome to the Rhino Podcast, brought to you by Rhino Records. Interviews with your favorite artists and bands about the songs and albums you love. Here's your host, Rich Mahan. On this episode of the Rhino Podcast, we speak with none other than rock legend Alice Cooper. I got no friends because they read the papers. They can't be seen with me. And I'm getting real shot down and I'm feeling mean. No more, Mr. Nice Guy. No more, Mr. friends looking to add to your record collection with some exclusive releases i recommend visiting rhino.com click on exclusives check out some of these titles on vinyl you can't find anywhere else like the stooges funhouse 50th anniversary deluxe edition it's an amazing collection of every take from the funhouse sessions on 15 180 gram lps including a 45 rpm version of the album on two lps with a fourth side etching the Van Halen Singles Box Set 7-inch collection on red vinyl. The Doors Soft Parade 50th Anniversary Edition, including a litho. And Curtis Mayfield, Keep On Keeping On. It's Curtis's first four albums on vinyl from 1970 to 74. And before you click that checkout button, make sure to sign up for Rhino Insider so you get the credit for your purchase. Well, ladies and gentlemen, today we are not worthy as we have the godfather of shock rock himself on the Rhino Podcast, Alice Cooper. Throughout his 50-plus year career, he's created some of rock's most enduring albums, and anyone who attends one of his shows knows it's no mere rock show. It's a theatrical experience that blends rock and horror camp to great effect, creating a concert experience uniquely its own. And as Alice will tell us, at 72, he never thought he'd still be touring the world to sold-out crowds with not only his band, but also with his second group, Hollywood Vampires, which includes Aerosmith guitarist Joe Perry and guitarist and actor Johnny Depp. Get ready for a conversation with the nicest guy in rock. Hi, Alice. Welcome to the podcast. Where are you these days? We're in Arizona. I've got three studios here in the house. Which one are we using today? uh, Today we're using the radio studio, but we have a full recording studio upstairs and uh, and a voiceover studio in there. So we've we've been doing a lot of stuff here. Uh, you've been really busy during the quarantine, haven't you? Yeah, we're really. You know, I mean, I'm not used to having time off like this. It's yeah. weird to have five, six months off. It's it's like very foreign to me. You know. Well, you're you're typically an incredibly busy person. You're you know remained at this high level of creative output your entire <laughs> career. How do you do it? Well, it's so weird. At 72, I did not think I would be in 
two touring bands. Yeah. <laughs> you know, right. I figured, you know, and I always said from the very beginning, I will retire when nobody shows up. If I, if I do a concert and nobody shows up, that's kind of your cue to stop, you know. Uh, right. But they're all showing up, so we're good. <laughs> but didn't isn't that the way you started? Didn't your manager, Shep, see you after you had cleared a room and said, I can use this? Yeah, well, him and Frank Zappa and uh, some of the GTOs. And uh, Steve, I think uh, Steve McQueen was there also on acid. Standing, oh, no way. Just standing there going, what? Because <laughs> <laughs> that was 1968, you know. Right. Well, let's start there because that new Laurel Canyon documentary that Allison Elwood just produced uh, premiered on Sunday, the first part. Yeah, yeah. And of course, you're in there. You're not a name that's normally associated with Laurel Canyon. I lived I lived right above the, uh, you know, the uh, log cabin uh, where Frank Zappa uh, lived. And my next door neighbor on the left was Mickey. Mickey was my next door neighbor. So everybody kind of lived right in that area right there. And Frank was producing us, you know, so yeah. I had total access down there to that place. Uh, yeah, and, you know, watching Frank work was really interesting because it was like he was kind of like a Mel Brooks. Nobody was out of bounds. Everybody got equally insulted, you know, <laughs> uh, and, and I always thought that that was a great thing. He was the only one that would literally that gave us a shot. Every other record company had, had just like laughed us out and he saw the potential for what we were doing there. Yeah, I can see the similarities between his approach visually and musically and you guys too. You were looking for something different than everything else that was going on at that time. Well, yeah, and we didn't chase the charts. You know, I mean, we were basically right. a a Yardbirds. We were a combination of the Yardbirds, that Friday night horror movie that, you know, uh, TV show that you used to see, um, a little bit of a West Side Story, uh, you know, it was all of these things all combined, and we allowed that to come into our to our show. But basically, yeah. we were a hard rock band. You know, it's just that we we allowed all those elements in. You know, and right. uh, so it, when it came out, it was just weird. People didn't know how to categorize it. What was it like the first time you met Frank? Well, it was very weird because I used to babysit with the GTOs. They 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 babysitted. You know, for Dweezil and. Moon Unit and everybody like that. They're little, and I'd go over there with Miss Christine, and then finally Miss Christine says, "Frank, you really ought to see this band, Alice Cooper." And of course, like everybody else, who's she? Yeah, right. And then when he saw the band, he went, "Oh, okay." He he, he just went, "Nobody will touch these guys except me." So yeah, and he was just starting straight records. You know, he had Captain Beefheart, and he had the GTOs, and and now Alice Cooper, and you know, uh, Tim Buckley, uh, you know, it was just a weird little label. Incredible group of label mates. Uh, yeah. At the time, nobody cared about anybody in that group. I mean, we were just the most underdogs there ever was. And I think Frank, Frank had a natural distrust for success. You know what I mean? He, I think he sabotaged his own career in a lot of ways. He could have written hit songs all the time. And he was one of the finest guitar players I ever heard in Amazing my life. Amazing guitar player. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the, the Claptons and the Jimi Hendrixes of the world looked to Frank as being the maestro, you know. Uh, and a lot of people did not recognize that. They were they were more interested in, in the farts and the burps and all the other things that were going on in the records. But when you, they didn't realize that all that stuff was written. 
there was not one thing that ever happened on a, on a mother's album. Every little squeak and creak are written, you know? So, I mean, that was the, the brilliance of it. Yeah. How do you annotate a burp? Yeah, I don't, I don't know how he puts that. But if you were a drummer, if you were a drummer trying to get into that band, first of all, you had to be the very best player in L.A. to be in the Mothers. The Mothers were the best players in Los Angeles. And if you were a drummer, you had to, there was a thing called the black sheet. It was his, you know, a sheet for the drummers that was basically black. There were so many things going on in it. And I only saw one drummer that ever got through it, and that was Ainsley Dunbar. Oh, wow. Yeah, and Ainsley got through it easily. And Frank said, okay, you're the drummer. You know, it's, nobody else could do it. I mean, it was just it was just so complicated. He had a knack for just finding amazing musicians. I mean, throughout the years, right? Uh, well, of course, Steve Vai on guitar. Right. He, he brought him up. Well, there, there's a great story behind that. So Steve Vai comes in, and Steve Vai is one of the finest guitar players ever. And, oh, yeah, sure. and he sits down and he plays with Frank, plays all the things. And Frank gets up and he says, yeah. He says, you know, I understand the Cowsills are looking for a guitar player. And what leaves the room? And Vi's sitting there going. And then he comes back and he says, oh, you're hired. <laughs> <laughs> but Frank was still a better guitar player. You know what I mean? Frank was the. And when Dweezil put his band together, Dweezil said, I had to quit playing for two years. You know, he says, so I could learn how to play like my dad, because my dad didn't play like anybody else. He played orchestration parts. He didn't right. just play lead. He could play blues and rock and everything, but he was playing the trumpet parts and he was playing the oboe parts and things yeah. like that. And, and, and you had to totally stop and listen to what he was playing and going, oh, my gosh, that's I've got to totally relearn how to play to play like that. Well, he was so inventive. I mean, I remember seeing a video of Frank when he was young playing a bicycle on television. Yeah, yeah, on the Steve Allen show. And that was very, very cool. But I really liked Frank because he had a very wry sense of humor. I, 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 I actually named one of his albums, Weasels Rip My Flesh. Oh, yeah. I was there and I was reading one of these Argo Sea magazines and the cover, it was this guy running through a swamp with all these weasels connected to it. <laughs> <laughs> and I went, Frank. It's an album cover. And he goes, he took it and he put it in his pocket. The next thing I know, Weasels Ripped My Flesh was an, was an album. That's a great <laughs> album cover, by the way. That's an awesome one. You have a new single out, Don't Give Up. You got a video out for it, too. This is, obviously, it's about what's going on with the pandemic. But how did you, one, how did the idea come about to write this song? And how did you get it done when nobody can get together in the studio? Well, I mean, that's that's the advantage of having an amazing band, you know, and Bob Ezrin also, you know, on producing. Sure. Um, I, my guitar player, one guitar player, Ryan Roxy, lives in Sweden. Uh, Tommy Hendrickson lives in Switzerland. Uh, Hurricane Nita Stra uh, Strauss lives in Los Angeles. Everybody lives in another city. And somehow, technology-wise, Bob got that together and had them all play, and it worked. But I, I liked the idea of, all I heard was sort of, we're victims of this pandemic. And I said, well, Alice never feels like a victim. I think Alice should actually talk to the virus and literally talk to it and just tell it, you know, yeah, you're impressive, but we'll be here long after you're gone. And it was a different tone of voice. It couldn't be sung. It had to be talked. And then when it got to the B section and chorus, then it breaks into the, you know, the big chorus. 
But yeah. I, I think Alice sitting down with the virus and just kind of letting it know that we're the human race and we will survive, you know. And that was an encouraging thing. People picked up on that and said, yeah, I'm tired of being a victim. I, I want to I punch the bully in the nose, you know. And that, yeah. that's, that's the attitude of the song. Our enemy is a cold, indiscriminate monster. It doesn't care if you're old or newborn. It exists to kill. You and I are nothing to it. It has no heart or soul or conscience. Do we fear it? Yeah. Do we cower before it? Hell no. We're the blood and guts human race. And we win. You know that it's right, so we just gotta fight. Yeah, we're all hanging on by a thread. I think that the spoken word parts really, like you say, they really drive home the feeling and the vibe of the words. And then when you get to the end of it, you say, This is Alice Cooper in Detroit. Let's keep fighting. Don't give up. What's the Detroit tag there? What's the meaning of that? You know, I am a Detroiter. I'm from Detroit. And the next album is called Detroit Stories. And it's all about Detroit with all Detroit musicians. Everything we did, we recorded it in Royal Oak, Detroit, right downtown. Everything we did was in Detroit. And this al- the song will be on that album. And I wanted to include that, you know, into that, in, in, you know, onto that album because, you know, it was just, uh, D- Detroiters are tough Midwest hard rock guys. That's it. The, all the hard rock bands came out of Detroit. Yeah, LA, yeah. LA had the Doors, you know, and San Francisco had the Grateful Dead and New York had the Young Rascals and those bands. But the hard rock bands came out of Detroit. Iggy and the Stooges, the MC5, yeah. Ted Nugent, Bob Seger, Alice Cooper, all those bands were coming out of Detroit. So I, I decided to write sort of a love letter back to Detroit, but it's a hard rock album. Oh, that's great. Can't wait to hear it. I, I kind of think that in some ways, especially with Stooges, like you said, like Funhouse for me, like, man, I wore that record out oh, yeah. when I was younger. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Great record. I think that in a way, Detroit doesn't get the credit that it's due for really kind of being a forefather of punk rock. Well, I mean, uh, you could not get more punk than Iggy and the Stooges. I mean, there's no doubt about that. And that was way before the Ramones, way before the Sex Pistols, way before, you know, I mean, he was street punk all the way. Uh, The very first time I saw Iggy, the the band had, we'd already been basically run out of a rail in Los Angeles and every place else. And we said, the first place that gives us a standing ovation, we're moving to. So, (laughs) so, so we get to Detroit to this big festival, 400,000 people. And, you know, we, we like to watch the bands. I'd never heard of the Iggy and the Stooges, you know, and, yeah. uh, and the MC5. MC5 were like this, you know, just energy up the butt. I mean, they were just like, and I went, wow, who are those guys? We weren't used to that, you know. And then I saw Iggy and the Stooges. We went on after Iggy and the Stooges. And, you know, <laughs> he's up there with his shirt off and peanut butter. And, uh, <laughs> and I looked at this guy and I went, now you're talking. This this is something now that's going to actually, it's it's a competition now. You know, I just saw something that made me go, what? So we got up and did our show, and Detroit loved it. They loved what we were doing. And then when they found out I was from Detroit, that was my hometown, we were we were that missing finger in the glove, you know? Right, And we, yeah. we became 
the new Detroit band. What year was that? That was 69, 70, right in there. But that's when I met Iggy and I met these guys and I just went, wow. No matter what Iggy was doing, the band just dum 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 da dum 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 da dum. And the very funny thing about this was he would go down in the audience and want to fight, right? And yeah. and after a couple of shows with him, you know, he'd go to this guy, you know, and blah, 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 blah. And Dennis Dunaway said at one point he turned around and I was standing there and he went, okay. He didn't want any part of me. <laughs> he didn't want any part of me, you know, because he thought it might, I might have rabies or something, you know. <laughs> But Iggy and I got to be really good friends. Uh, to this day, we're still good friends. And and I'm working with Wayne Kramer right now from, uh, you know, from MC5. MC5. So all those Detroit bands never kind of ever, we always kind of like, it was a brotherhood. You would play the East Town Theater, and it would be the Stooges, Alice Cooper, Bob Seger, and the Who. You know, 2000 seat theater. Oh my God. You know, because right. back then big bands did not play arenas. They played clubs. Yeah, sure. You know, we played with the kinks. We played with the Yardbirds. We played with all those bands oh, man. because they didn't play the big arenas. Right. And I mean, that's, that's when, that's when rock and roll in Detroit was really rock and roll. I mean, it was just the coolest rock dungeons ever. What do you think it is about Detroit? Because I think, you know, obviously, like, you know, San Francisco, like you named the other three big music cities in the country. But yeah. Detroit kind of flies under the radar in that respect. I don't think they get the respect that they deserve. But I mean, look at all the Motown stuff on top of that. What came together in Detroit to enable the kids to have the wherewithal to come up with the music? Their parents worked at the Ford factories. They worked at Chrysler. Everybody's parents worked in, you know, on, on cars. Yeah. Everybody had mentality was horsepower. It was everybody was street. Interesting, yeah. There, there was no high echelon there. It was all street. In other words, if you if, if they went to a concert that night and they were in Levi's and boots and a black leather jacket and a t-shirt, they didn't have to go home and put that on. That's what they wore. Right. You know, yeah. long black hair. You know, that was that was just streetwear. And so they didn't in Los Angeles. They would have gone and put all that on. You know, yeah. to, but Detroit, that was streetwear. And the, the strange thing was we would play like those big rock concerts down there. You know, I mean, that would just be hard rock, sweaty, dirty rock and roll. And you'd look down and there's Smokey Robinson and you would look over here and there's Stevie Wonder. And you look over there and there's guys from The Temptations because they dug the rock scene. Yeah. And, and then if they were playing a show down at the Rooster Tail or something, we'd all be there. Right. And so there was there was a there was like a real fraternity in rock and Motown that was just incredible. You know, it was like a brotherhood. If you were a musician, in fact, during the riots, anybody with long hair that was in a band could go into any black bar downtown and be totally accepted. Whoa. We we never had to worry about whites against blacks, that whole thing, because 
when you were a musician, there was no color involved. I mean, you didn't see black and white. It was just your musician. And so that means you're not the enemy. Wow, that's so unique. That's uh, It really makes that scene different than all the other scenes, doesn't it? Because it, it wasn't really integrated did. like that in other, other scenes. No, San Francisco, it, was, it, it was mid-America. It was industrial. It was, uh, they did not want the Carpenters. They right. did not want any band that was, you know, in the least bit soft. When they went to see rock, they wanted rock. They wanted it hard. They wanted it loud. They wanted it angry. And that's what they got. The band, that's what the bands were. Yeah. So when you guys recorded back then in the early 70s, how much of it would you get all live at the same time? And how much would you go in and overdub afterwards? Well, now I insist on that. The band I have now, in fact, in about the last 10 years, I have really insisted on going into the studio with the band and doing the song. And, and this includes the original band. In the last two, two or three albums, in fact, Paranormal, um, Dennis, Neil, Mike, myself, yeah, the songs that we did together in the studio were all live because that was the sound we wanted. That was that, was that band. And if there was any overdub, it was just detail stuff. It certainly wasn't. The power was in how good did it feel, not how technically good was it. It wasn't, the, it wasn't Queen. It was... right. How did it feel? Yeah, you know, right. And that's and that's how I always do it now. Bob Ezrin and I always love going in the studio and, and with a live band and doing it like that. The only other band that used to do that better than anybody, probably anybody ever, was Paul Butterfield. The East West album was basically a live album, and, and that shocked me. I talked to Elvin Bishop and I said, "How many takes did it take to do Work Song or East West or any of those songs?" And he goes, "What do you mean?" And I said, "Well, well how many takes?" <laughs> And he says, no, we just went in, plugged in and did it. I said, live. And he says, yeah. If you listen to the guitar work and the harmonica work of Butterfield and Bloomfield and Bishop, yeah. it's impeccable. There's not, it's, un, it's beyond belief. And he says, no, that was one take. finish it up and just look at each other and go okay what's next wow that's like and boy the <laughs> studio's fun when you're like you don't get bogged down in stuff it just keeps it no. rolling it's it's great and i've done it both ways you know when we did like back in the old days we did killer when and we never recorded like that where you'd put the uh the drums and bass down first and yeah. then put the guitar over top of it and that was kind of the style of doing things back then right on on, on schools out and billion dollar babies those were kind of produced albums yeah we, we were just used to going and playing live, you know, and, uh, and so it, I've done it both ways, but I really prefer having a band that can just play the song. Yeah. You know? Right. Yeah. Well, speaking of bands, uh, I've, I've seen you a few times. I saw you with the original guys in here in Nashville. Uh, I guess it was probably three years ago. You played at the Music oh, yeah. City Center. Great That's show. Right. Really fun. But then yeah. I saw you at, at TPAC maybe the year before that or the year after that. It was right around there with your full stage production show. And yeah. your band just kills. You got three guitar assault. I think it's yeah. all the same people that you mentioned earlier. It's all the people. It's, uh, you yeah. know, it, 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 to a point there, 
Ryan, Roxy, and I, and Chuck, and I've been together almost 20 years, more than that. Wow. You know, most bands uh, so, don't last that long. No. And uh, Chuck, you know, Chuck Garrick lives there in, in Nashville. That's right. Uh, and Ryan, I mean, just is one of those great guitar players and knows the stage better than anybody. Uh, and then we got Tommy Hendrickson, who, who was actually an engineer on a couple of my early albums. And I heard him play and I heard him and he, I just looked at him. I said, you need to be in my band, I think. <laughs> How cool is you that? Know? Then when I found Nita Strauss, I had Orianthi in the band. Orianthi was a killer, killer blues guitar player. And she went off with Richie Sambora to do an album. And I just accidentally found Hurricane Nita Strauss. Yeah. I, I was looking for a shredder. Right. And, and I well, heard and her. Went, certainly is that. She's oh, yeah, yeah. 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 And then when I got Nita and she was just, I went, holy crap, who is this? You know, and she's she was voted guitarist of the decade by one of the, you know, guitar magazines. Satriani couldn't say enough about her. I yeah. mean, uh, you know, which is pretty high praise. Yeah, yeah. And then and then Glenn Sobel on drums, who was voted best drummer in rock and roll. So I had a pretty darn good band up there. <laughs> no kidding. I mean, what do you look for in players? Is it just, uh, does it have to be as much of a fit personality-wise as they are musically? Or what strikes That's, you first? That's so important. Yeah. You know, and, and the crazy thing is, is that everybody in the Alice Cooper band are best friends. Oh, that's so cool. You never, ever hear an ego thing going on. You never hear anybody stomping out of a room. You never hear ever. It's always laughing backstage, you know. <laughs> now, the weird thing is, same thing with the Hollywood vampires. The Hollywood vampires, you've got three, you know, alpha males. You got Johnny Depp, who's used to running his show. Sure. Joe Perry, you know, right. Alice Cooper. There has never been one argument in that band. There has never been one point of contention in that band. We Every time we get together, we're just happy to be on stage and happy to be playing these songs and can't believe we were going to just be a bar band. Yeah. You know, and it How ended did it up, start? How did the Hollywood Vampires start? Well, I was doing Dark Shadows with Johnny, and I'd never met Johnny before. Okay. But I knew he was a guitar player. Yeah. And so I met Johnny. We got along great. You know, he was a very cool, very one of the nicest people you'd ever meet in your life really cared about his art you know when he was playing the character he was that character sure you know yeah and and then we had dinner one night and i started telling him about the hollywood vampires you know yeah. the original guys john lennon and keith moon and harry nilson and you yeah. know all the guys so right. bernie Toppin, all of us and he said you know it'd be great as be to put a band together to sort of tip their hat to all of our dead drunk friends you know and right there, I, I said, that'd be just fun to have a bar band, just to go around L.A. and play bars. Yeah. You know, and Joe Perry said, I'm in. <laughs> you know? So now we have those three. Duff McKagan goes, I'm in. You know, <laughs> and pretty soon we had this band. And, and we had all this music to go to. Yeah. You know, we, had, oh, we, could, we, we just, and it had to be somebody that we knew. It had to be somebody that we drank with or got high with. Right. It had to be somebody that was dead. And so there were people that were saying, oh, how come you never do my songs? I said, you don't want us to do your songs. You're not dead. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I said, be very careful what you wish for. Yeah, right. You know? But, you know, then, then it really, it started out being, we played the Roxy. For uh, everybody showed up and it was fun. You know, everybody came up and played. Perry Farrell. You oh, know, wow, it, yeah. Who, 
who was ever in town got up and played. Right. It was great. Right. The next show was Rock and Rio, 200,000 people. Oh, my gosh. Now you have to remember now, everybody in that band has been in front of 200,000 people. Sure. Except Johnny. Right. How do you handle it? Johnny wanted to be sort of the back guy, the Keith Richards sort of, I want to be in the background. And we did not allow that. I said, <laughs> Johnny, I said, when, you, when it's your lead, I said, you step out and you be the lead player. And when Joe, your lead, you step out and be the lead player. And when I'm there, I'm going to be the lead. And we, we, and it would go back and forth. Johnny was like that. Yeah. And he nailed it, nailed it. He just, he was just, he was right there with Swagger. it. Now, now people don't get the fact of how good of a guitar player he is. I mean, he's out, he's working with Jeff Beck right now. Yeah. You know that if you're working with Jeff Beck, <laughs> that means you're doing something pretty right with the guitar, you know? Right. And, they, sure. and people were shocked, you know, when they all of a sudden heard him playing guitar and they went, he's not an actor trying to be a guitar player. He yeah. was a guitar player that accidentally became an actor. Isn't that interesting? Oh. So yeah. it's great when he gets on stage, we don't really treat him as, you know, Edward Scissorhands or any of those things. He's Johnny, our guitar player. Right. Yeah. He's a real rock and roll pirate. Well, here's the funny thing. I'll be here. Joe, Joe will be here. Uh-huh. Johnny's over here. So if you look at the audience, every girl's looking this way. <laughs> <laughs> so every, every once in a while, I'll go way over here and go, I just want a little bit of this, okay? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> You know, you brought up that he's working with Jeff Beck, who is one of the most unique and fantastic guitar players on the planet. There's no doubt. I would say my favorite. He's yeah. my him and Jimmy Page, you know, or, uh, well, I did an interview with him one time and I said, uh, I look at it this way. Eric Clapton, best blues player. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Page, best rock and roll player. Yeah. Jimi Hendrix, probably the most inventive. Beck, best guitar player. So in other words, he could do all of it. Just the like that with the Yardbirds when he was 18 19 years old crazy he was uh, he was so good on the guitar that it was crazy yeah you know so one of the funniest things was they played the VIP club in Phoenix we were the house band there in high school we were in high school we were called the spiders so we get up to open for them we were the Yardbirds band we played all their songs before them <laughs> everyone and they're in the back they're in the back going, yeah, yeah. I mean, they weren't going boo. They were going, oh, cool. Then they got up on stage and blew us off the stage. Wow. We were, we were not getting used to getting blown off the stage, but they were the Yardbirds, the yeah. original Yardbirds. Right. And that would, we, our jaws were like, what? <laughs> we, we realized how far we had to go to get to that level. You know, yeah, right. They were, they were one of the greatest live bands ever. That's know. amazing. How else have you been keeping yourself busy in the quarantine? Because like you said, you got a lot of time on your hands, especially people in the music industry that are busy doing stuff, touring, getting out there, working. All of a sudden, our schedules were clear. Yeah. 
I'm not used to that. You know, the great thing for me was this. Uh, we came home. We were in Germany. We were in Berlin doing a show in Berlin. And they said, you have two days to get out of Germany and get oh, back man. to America because we're going to close the state, the whole country. And we went, okay, we got back. And I kind of expected, well, you know, in a month, we'll, we'll get back and get the schedule going again. Not realizing that we probably won't be back on tour till November, December, mm -hmm. maybe January, you know? So here's everybody going, uh, what do I do now? What, what time's the show tonight? What's the rehearsal? When is the sound check? We're so used to doing that that you had to get used to being at home. Yeah. You know, the cool thing was I brought my daughter and her husband in from LA. They're both comedy writers and they're both improv comedians. So they're living here. And my <laughs> youngest daughter and her husband, he's an engineer and there's three studios here. Sound engineer. You've got All a right? compound going. Yeah. No, it's an absolute it's Camp Cooper here. Camp Cooper. <laughs> my youngest daughter is ready to have a little girl oh, in right July. On. Yeah, I, my, our first little girl. We got three little boys. Now we need a little girl. Well, congratulations. So, so it really is like a summer camp here. And the neat thing about it is every single day, I, I'm either doing one or two of these that we're doing. Yeah. Or I'm recording up. Uh, Bob Ezrin will call me up and say, you know, that third song. Let's let's try to get that second verse again. Let me just so I'm upstairs re-recording verses for the album that's done. Yeah. Because he has too much time on his hands and he's listening oh, to it too much. I know. I'm going, yeah. it's done. And he goes, Yeah, but <laughs> yeah, you know, but if we you know <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so I'm literally busy all the time. I'm doing these things all the time and it's great for me. Yeah. On top of it, I'm writing songs. Okay. And on Wednesday night is tap dance night. Now I've heard about this. How did you get into tap dancing, man? One of my best friends here in town is a professional tap dancer. Okay. Right. I mean, really good. Fred Astaire stuff. Okay. And my wife and my two daughters are professional dancers. They can tap already, you know, but they're, they're like scholarship. Cheryl was with Joffrey ballet, Hubbard street. I mean, she was like, she's the real deal. Okay. So, now we got all the guys and all the girls and we got the thing there and he's doing a virtual tap dance lesson. We all have tap shoes on, you know, with plywood boards. Okay. Now my neighbors up here, all they're hearing is <laughs> We're like that commercial, that Geico commercial, the, the clog commercial. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That's, ex that's exactly what we are. So Wednesday night I decided, hey, if you were a vaudevillian, you had to learn tap dance. So Alice oh, yeah. Cooper has always been a vaude. Well, I'm more of a vaudevillain, but vaudevillian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, I better learn how to tap dance. And oh, that's it, I classic. mean, that's, that was just something you'd never ever do in your life. But why not do right. it? Yeah. yeah. Hey, good exercise too, right? Yeah. It's oh no, it's really hard. It's not easy at all. I can imagine. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so, but you know, exercise, I'm sure, you know, I know you're an avid golfer. Have you been getting out and playing golf? Every day. Every day? I, really? I, I play every morning at five thirty, six o'clock. Wow. Uh, in Fork Arizona, there's, there's 200 golf courses in Arizona. Yeah. And the mayor said, I'm going to keep the golf courses open. So I don't care if this guy's Taliban, I'm voting for him. <laughs> <laughs> the golf course is open, you know, and, and now, you know, I mean, I play every day. 
you know, I come back and then I start working here with this or working upstairs and everything. Yeah. And pretty, pretty soon then at night you sit there and you go, okay, whose turn is it to pick the movie? You guys have movie night every night? Well, there's movies that I realize that none of these people have seen. Uh, Return of the Pink Panther, Kentucky Fried Movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, student Bodies, you know, and I'm sitting there going, you've never seen that? You've never seen this movie? Uh, Danny Kaye movie, Court Jester? No. Oh, everybody sit down. <laughs> and it's, it's really cool because they sit there and they, especially the comedians, you know, I mean, they're sitting there going, I've never seen this. And they're laughing their heads off going, wow, that's funny. It still works. And it's putting it in their mind. It'll come out later in writing something else, you know? know, I'd say, you've never seen Little Britain. No? Okay. Sit down. If you like Monty Python, you're going to love this. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's funny. uh, My folks and all my family is from Phoenix, about 44th and Camelback. That's right where we live. Okay. I live on 44th and Camelback. Well, do you remember there was the Blockbuster right there on 44th and Camelback? Yeah. One time I'm in there picking out a movie to watch it, and I'm looking in front of the comedies, and I'm looking at the Mel Brooks movies, and this voice over my right shoulder says, oh, that's a really good one. You got to get it. And I turn, and it's you. (laughs) It was a high anxiety. High anxiety, baby. Yeah. Yeah. That was one of those movies that a lot of people missed. And yeah. it's one of his funniest movies, you know. I think I'll have a cookie. <laughs> yeah, right. No fruit cup. No fruit cup. <laughs> Cloris Leachman is awesome in that. Yeah. Nurse, so Nurse Diesel, yeah. Arizona, besides golf, known for the best Mexican food in the world. Los, Los Dos Molinas. Los Dos Molinas, that's a good one. There's two kinds of Mexican food. There's the tourist food. Yeah. That's the ones that everybody goes to and you go, oh, this is Mexican food. The people that live in Arizona go, no, it isn't. (laughs) (laughs) The place you want to go is down here and you look at this place and go, I wouldn't go in there. No, that's where it's good. The best Mexican food. Those are the places you're looking for. What's your order? Oh, man, you know, it's... Well, it's all the same. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. crunchy or soft. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's it's beans. It's cheese. It says in what form do you want it? You know, so it's basically all the same. Yeah, yeah. We haven't even mentioned that you have a nationally syndicated radio show, Nights with Alice Cooper, and a podcast that's a spinoff of that. That that does keep you busy. I mean, the nice thing is with doing a syndicated radio show and. Pro Tools and a computer is that I can do my show from an airport in Russia somewhere. Yeah. You know, I can do the show from anywhere, from hotel rooms, from airplanes, from tour buses. And a lot of times we do that. And, yeah. and I love the idea. I had somebody said, your show sounds so, uh, you said it was totally haphazard. And I went, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I want. Right. I want, I want it to sound like Alice is talking to them. wherever they are in the world. And yeah, I make mistakes. I do all kinds of things. There's all kinds of things going on that are right and wrong. And I never try to sound like a disc jockey, you know, and I get to play what I want to play. Yeah. And and I have all the backstage stories. I mean, I have like a library of backstage. I always tell people name somebody, you know, if you say, if you say Keith Moon, there's 500 stories about Keith Moon. I totally want to hear a Keith Moon story. You got to lay a Keith Moon story on me. Okay. All right. Keith Moon was everybody's house guest in Los Angeles. He would come into town and with his suitcase okay. and knock on the door, and Keith was with you for two weeks. 
<laughs> now that two weeks was exhaustion <laughs> because he was a little kid. He was a little kid that needed Ritalin and, <laughs> but the sweetest guy in the world. And, you know, so my wife and I've been married one year and we come home one day, open the door. I'm not kidding. There's Keith Moon in a full French maid's outfit with a duster. Oh, hello. Uh, I have dusted the whole house. May, uh, may I have the night off? And all this. And my wife goes, who is this? <laughs> and I go, greatest drummer ever lived. You know, hi, Keith. How you doing? Oh, I am fine. So that day he was a French maid. So after about 10 days, my wife is going, I love Keith, but it's yeah. time to move on. Yeah, He's, right. You know, he was going to go to Harry Nilsson's house next and then Ringo and then, you know. Yeah. And so she says, make an excuse that we have to leave and we'll see him over at Harry's house. Right. And so I said, okay. So I said, hey, we have a meeting with our lawyers and da 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 da. And he's going, oh, can I go? You know, and I'm Aww. going, Keith, it's a lawyer's meeting. You hate this. You're going to hate this. Okay. All right. You know, like a little kid. Yeah, right. You know? So we're driving down. You know, Benedict Canyon and Cheryl's driving because I drank a little bit then. And <laughs> the next thing I know, I just see this. Hello. He's on the roof of the car. Oh, God. <laughs> and, and Cheryl goes, ah, and she slams the brakes on, you know, and he almost comes off the thing. She goes, get in the car. You know, like, like a mother, get in the car. Yeah, right. And he gets in the car, you know, and, but he was so funny. He was so much fun. But I swear at the end, now that's one story. I could tell you a hundred more stories. Oh my God. And I could name you everybody in rock and roll that could tell you a hundred different ones. Yeah. Because for Keith, that was Tuesday. Right. Yeah. yeah. Being on top of a Rolls Royce going down, you know, he would, the vampires would, would all meet at the rainbow every night uh -huh. and you go, they would go up to the roost of the vampires and Harry would be there and Lennon would be there. All the guys would be sitting, waiting to see who Keith was going to be that night. And doors would open up and there's the Queen of England. <laughs> and Hello. Like, Hello. Scepter, crown. He'd go to Western Costume and rent the entire outfit. <laughs> he had a, a 1927 Rolls Royce that he took all the seats out of it and he put a throne in the back of it, Right. So when he went down Hollywood Boulevard, he could come up out of the roof as the Queen of England. Hello. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> I mean, certifiably insane. Truly. Yeah. But I mean. There, there's been so many people trying to do movies about Keith. And you just can't capture it. Because every day was a different story that somebody's going to tell. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Did you guys ever get to jam? Oh, yeah. We'd be playing in Detroit. And Neil Smith was the ultimate rock star, our drummer. Okay. He was six foot eight. He had blonde hair down to his waist. He wore all glitter. He, his drums looked like he would find out how many drums Keith had and get one more. So he, he, he would say, how many drums do you have, Keith? And he'd go, 31. He says, I have 32. <laughs> so one night we go on before the Who. And at the end of the show, there's this drum thing. It goes on and on and on and on and on. And all of a sudden, there's another drum thing because Keith joins in. Now there's 68 drums up there. And it's great. I mean, it's really yeah, right. great. At the very end, it stops. Neil looks over at Keith, gets up on, the, on his stool, stands up. Now 
he's like that statue of Christ in Rio de Janeiro. Okay, yeah, sure, yeah, right. (laughs) And he puts his hand up in the air and just twirls his stick like that. (laughs) And even Keith went like this, wow. (laughs) That is like the ultimate ego, which was great because that's what Neil did. Neil played it to the hilt yeah. that billion, I'm a billion dollar baby and I am the ultimate platinum God. But <laughs> off stage, he was hysterical. Yeah, you know right. I mean, yeah. So he got one up on Keith on that one. Yeah, I can't imagine. That must have been, I mean, don't oh. you wish there was a camera rolling for all of this oh, stuff all yeah, the time? Yeah, and not that we didn't have that then. We, yeah, right. Everybody wishes there was, everybody would, have, I would have died for that piece of film. Oh, man. You know? Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And that doesn't happen anymore. Unfortunately, you know, I, 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 the one thing that I hope happens with this whole thing is that the rock dungeon scene starts again with young rock bands playing a thousand seat place, good hard rock bands that go in there just to play. How much we make a night doesn't matter. Yeah. We're going to play. Right. You know, I just want to get up on stage and play. I want that energy from young rock bands now. And I think that this might be the time when that happens. In other words, all of the BS is gone. We're just a rock band. And this that's how I saw Guns N' Roses first time. Yeah. They were in a bar and I just went, holy crap, who are these guys? You know, there's a lot of bands. But then there was that band that was, wow. Yeah. It just blows you know, your hair back. Yeah. Yeah. yeah they, they had everything. They had everything. Wow. They had the whole package, you know. Yeah. What do you think? Uh, what do you think touring's going to look like post pandemic? I mean, we're not going to be able to jump back and do it the way it was. It's like you said, this whole thing has kind of hit the reset button. I think that you know, once this thing is gone, what's to keep everybody from going back to concerts? We're back to where we were, right? Except that we don't have a coronavirus. Yeah. So what would stop everybody from going back and making concerts the way that they used to be? I mean, un- unless another virus comes along, but for right now, I don't think people are going to elbow forever. You yeah. know, I think you're going to yeah. go back to what we were. I, I don't think it's going to start like that. I think it's going to start a lot lower, and you're going to watch the bigger bands playing smaller places and mm-hmm. let it and let it grow to what it is. I hope so. But, I love seeing a great band in a, a nice theater. It's just there's no uh, better experience, man. If we had our choice, I mean, we played the big outdoor shows, and normally we're going to be playing places five to 10,000 people. But I much prefer playing a 2,500-seat theater in the Midwest. That's an old movie theater because our show sits. It's a theater piece. Yeah. It's a hard rock piece. Oh, I mean, absolutely. We're never going to water it down. You saw it. Oh, and, yeah. And that works on a big stage, but it works so much better in a theater. Yeah, yeah. You know, you see every detail. Oh, yeah, you know? absolutely. So, so for us, we, we every once in a while go from doing uh, arena tours, and all of a sudden I said, next tour we're doing all theaters. And everybody goes, oh, that's cool. That's yeah. going to be cool. They sound yeah. better, too. And, and it makes it more compact. It makes it more pressurized. You yeah. Know? Well, Alice, thank you so much for your time today, man. Great talking with you. Thank you, man.
Thanks very much for tuning in. Don't forget to listen and subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss the next Rhino podcast. Producer for Rhino Entertainment, John Hughes. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Rich Mayhem Promotions. All rights reserved.